0: Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online in our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message.
1: Good morning. Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there with you. It is good to be together, to be in this space, to hear the creak of the floors, the groaning of the pews, the sound of each other's voices, and feel the beating of our hearts. Please pray with me. God, our Father and Mother, source of light and love, We come before you mindful of the prayers lifted in community last week. Just last Sunday, we heard prayers of gratitude for our beloved Steve, now here with us, returned to his home after so much time away. We heard prayers of gratitude for community's grace in the face of a fire, and we learned that gratitude is bound up with deep sorrow for a loss of a home, a home that had been in the family for three decades. Over the past week, we have kept in our hearts caregivers who now are also in need of care and who wait in hopes of their own healing. And there are joys and concerns held in our hearts about personal health, about worry for family members' health, about loss. And we know that these are whispered haltingly, even in silence. Three years into the pandemic, a year into an awful war and surrounded by violence in schools and supermarkets. Lord, we are exhausted. We know wilderness. Help us find light in darkness. Please be with me. Let my words in this service provide some comfort some insight, and perhaps more in these times. Amen. Welcome all to First Presbyterian Church. Welcome our visitors. Welcome in particular my family members. Church in 2023 at the end of Black History Month is different from what it was when we celebrated the end of Black History Month in 2020. We worship within these walls and across the country. We know and we have sanctuary that is open to all. The trick, our challenge, is to be open to the world. And yet, as Connor reminded us just moments ago, provide a haven from the distractions of the world, if only for an hour. It is a sweet privilege to be together. To be fully present to each other, to be open to the opportunity, for again as Connor mentioned, through each other the encounter with the divine. But we're doing more I think than being together right now in this moment and releasing ourselves hopefully of distractions There is more happening than just a wonderful moment of worship and of sharing. We sit in a building with an extraordinary vaulted ceiling. We are surrounded by gorgeous stained glass of which we sometimes inappropriately claim with pride. All of this is made possible by a breakthrough technology from the 12th century with the construction of the first Gothic cathedrals. No structure would built would last built by distracted masons. And today our sanctuary combines stone and mortar and electrons. It is held together without or with our attention and our intention. So whatever might distract you right now from this glorious presence of being together whether or not you're here or whether or not you're at home, whether you're not with family members of mine in Maine or in California, put away your phone for a moment. Help us build a different kind of sanctuary. And even after you, if you have to let that last flapjack go dry, be with us. In this way, we will all be together, and those who are watching from far away, outside of these walls, can be part of the great cloud of witnesses spoken about in Hebrews. So please take a moment now to close your eyes and breathe together. Just moments ago, we had the joy of greeting each other with a smile and a handshake, a holy high five, or a glorious hug. Hold on to that feeling. Breathe in that love. And with an exhale, acknowledge the, any pain you carried in with you. I hope you feel the love of this community as we breathe in again. And let us open ourselves to an encounter with the divine. Um, now, I have family here with me more than uh, more than usual, um, and so I feel I would like to be here. I'd like to be close. Um, so that's what I'm going to do, because I have the mic. This last few weeks have been a challenge for me. Um, with the third anniversary of the shutdown coming, and the first year of the war in Ukraine behind us and shootings on school campuses and in malls, more than one for every single day of this year so far. And yes, the awful video of Tyree Nichols and his murder. The last weeks have been hard. And for me and for all of us, the danger is not an abstract one. Just consider the the. Five people killed at the Michigan State University. Uh, Some of you may know that our daughter Abby is at University of Michigan in the last months of her graduate degree. One of the young people that she is mentoring at at Michigan State, and you know Abby, she is a mentor. One of the people she is mentoring at Michigan State lost a friend who had a friend who was injured with the gun violence, and so when I spoke to Abby, That night, just checking in, Lansing is far enough away from Ann Arbor, I thought she was going to be plenty safe. It was that close. And within this room and within this sanctuary, there have been mass shootings that have taken the lives of people that we know, or when we think about the subway stop, a mass shooting that affected, it was just blocks away from where Jane Quinn lives. It's right here. We know wilderness. If you turn yourselves back, you turn your minds back to that last February of 2020, we thought, okay, we are going to take, undertake certain protections. We'll do the elbow, handshake, and we'll maybe put on masks, and we'll be done with this in three weeks. We had no idea what was coming to us, none. And then the ambulances came, and they came, and they came, and they came. And for the first time in our lives, many of us knew something of probably the existential feel of being on a battlefield, that feeling where you don't know what will be the next death-dealing thing. Some of us have compromised immune systems. Some of us were dealing with chemotherapy. Some of us have always danced along in the, the brinks of asthma or some other respiratory disease. And the ambulances keep, kept coming. The fear was real. And just thinking about that period in which we couldn't do the very thing that today we can do, we could not come together we couldn't reach out and touch. We couldn't hug. Someone's errant s- sneeze or cough might carry our destruction. For all of us, it was a raw time. There are spaces in the pews today. Some because people are are still, uh, for their own purposes, sensibly. Staying away from church and worshiping with us online. And it's for that reason that we have to do everything we can to build a sanctuary that includes them. But there are other pews that are empty because the people who would normally be here, for whatever reasons, they will not. We know wilderness. Many of us pre-pandemic knew what it was like to have one person in an intensive care unit. They may have known what it was like to have someone. The doctor say, well, we're going to have to put them on a respirator. My sister is here, and, you know, we knew very well both the sound and the sight Of having a loved one placed on a respirator because it happened a year before the pandemic. It is an ugly and awful and a torturous thing for a person to endure and for loved ones to stand helplessly by. And in that time of pandemic that was happening all over the city and we absorbed that. We saw that. And we were alone. We know wilderness and then whether or not it's the almost attempted racial reckoning or the violence that is in the land or the violence that is overseas but visits us every single day with images and stories from ukraine and from elsewhere around this violent globe of ours We heard our truth in the song that was just sung. I've been buked. Remember the stanza, there is trouble all over this land. There is trouble all over this land. As I prepare for this moment and um, listen to that song again, um, I was reminded that it had been sung by Mahalia Jackson, in fact, she recorded it many times. Um, uh, those of you who are around my age, those who were kids of you who are kids or older in the 60s would know that she was gospel music at the time. She was huge, and um, she was a friend of martin luther king's and so at the One of the many times she recorded the song was at the 1963 March on Washington. She spoke just before King. She sang just before King. And she stood there in all of her gut-bucket grandeur, and she laid them out. And people at home and people in front of her, they were settled. Because you can't hear that, at least I can't hear that, without feeling the whoom. I need to take a moment. But the genius of Mahalia Jackson is, and her understanding of services and the March on Washington was many things, but at the end in the core were preachers and gospel singers. She said there has to be an ark, and she took that ark. The song that doesn't get as much play from her, is at least people don't necessarily t- think about Mahalia Jackson and that song. And the, one, the next song was How I Got Over. My soul looks back and wonder how I got over. She looked back at where they had come from. She didn't know that there were, there were dogs and there was a bombing two or three months ahead in Birmingham. But she knew where they had come from. And how 200,000 people, black and white, together, mostly, including two of our aunts, in their Sunday best, came together to collect on the promise that was owed to our people. And she pivoted, and she wasn't even done contributing to that service when she's went back and looked back and wondered how they got over, how I got over. And I really think we can look back over these last three years and think about that fear and think about what we have at this moment and wonder how we got over together. She wasn't finished when she sat down because when Dr. King stood up to give his speech about this country and what was owed and the promise he was almost finished and she said tell him about the dream it was not in his original speech tell him about the dream she could say that to him because she not only shared it she was his friend she could speak that with confidence because she knew him and he had heard, she had heard his story. But she could speak it with boldness because she knew on what he relied. He had told many times the stories of the Montgomery bus boycott. So let's roll back to 1954, 1955. And in the bus boycott, um, King was a young minister. He was 26. <laughs> And the pressure was on him. The establishment in Montgomery did not want him to challenge the status quo. And it was a status that, you know, the establishment plays nice. The people that were calling him in the middle of the night, that was the Klan. They don't play nice. They bomb houses, they shoot people, they lynch people, and they were calling him night after night. And in fact, on January 26th, he was arrested for speeding. Mindful of that, All, many of us are mindful of that. Travel right at the speed limit, but he was arrested for speed limit, speeding, and he thought that it was the end for him. It was trumped up, and um, they were taking him to a jail, or they said to the jail, which actually was not in downtown Birmingham, it was out in the country. And the next thing he thought he would be shot or lynched and definitely gone, but he was not. And the people came to him, they protested, they surrounded the, the jailhouse. And from one second being told he wasn't gonna be able to make bond, the next second he was told, well, you can be released on your own recognizance. And he had several mass meetings after that. People knew he had been arrested, they wanted to see him, they came into one church. And then when that -church, church overflowed, they went into another. Then they went to a third, a fourth, a fifth. All told, seven mass meetings last night. And he was giving everything that he could with each one. And after that point, he went home and he was exhausted. And the phone kept ringing. And it rang. His people, black people, calling to say, Are you okay? People who had family members that were still in jail were calling, Can you help? The pressure was relentless. And then he was getting calls saying, We're done with you, Negro. They used a different word, obviously. And he had felt very much that he was in the wilderness alone. He couldn't sleep, went down to his kitchen table. This is January 27th now, 1955. Went down to his kitchen table, poured a cup of coffee. He was at a kitchen table, much like the people who are at home right now. And he just put his head down. And he finally admitted it him to himself. He tells the story of saying, I cannot do this by myself. And he says, this child of preachers, raised in the church, student at divinity school, a top student at divinity school, now leading a congregation, he says that moment at that kitchen table was his first experience of the divine. What did it take? It took surrender. And an admission, I can't do this alone. Not one of us can. That is not how we came to this moment. Pretty much whole, definitely changed, deeply in love with each other. We didn't do it alone. So the scripture says that Jesus went, um, was led by the uh, spirit. So the scripture and tradition um, say that just before Jesus went into wilderness, and Virginia, you read beautifully, just before he went into the wilderness, um, he had been baptized by John the Baptist, who had um, said to him, uh, I'm not worthy to do this. This is I should be asking you, not you asking me. Two, John Jesus both displaying humility, which should be our core one of our core tenets. And he moved into the wilderness. And when I thought about this, I thought this was why would anybody want to go into the wilderness? I'm in the wilderness. We know wilderness. This is not a job. Thank you very much. I am not signing up for. And it says the spirit led him into the wilderness. But here's the thing. I am, much as I love being in the countryside, there's a big chunk of me, like the rest of us, we are urban people. And what comes to mind for us when we're thinking about the wilderness and Desert, that's not what the experience was like in the first century when Jesus moved into, it's called the Desert of Judah, which is east of, east of Jerusalem, and the River Jordan runs through it. It is the desert to which, in the fourth century, mystics retired and became inspired. So what happens in the first century when he retreats or is led into a wilderness um, I happen to like deserts, uh, in part because I love the sky. Um, I always have. And when you're in the desert, particularly at night, the sky is super clear. There's not much moisture, so there are two things that happens. There aren't any clouds, and there's not much distortion. And if you've moved from village or town or city into a place where there are no competing lights, even the starlight, once your eyes adjust, can be bright enough to cast shadows on the ground. It is amazing. And so as we go through, go through Lent, a part of the Lenten experience that we are sort of tracking Jesus' experience is we need to experience awe. Jesus was in the desert experiencing that awe. And one of the things that happens, at least my experience, and actually the science says that, when those things happen, whether or not it's in a cathedral, which might have a ceiling twice as high as this, or in the desert, just under the sky, we feel both small and large. We feel expanded and we feel connected. And one of the worst things about this wilderness we've been is that it's disconnected us so much from each other. And it is so good to be together. What else happens? The desert is... So the desert that that, uh, Jesus was in, the desert of Judah, is filled with canyons. Because there is water there, um, but it flows through things called wadis. Those are basically small canyons or... a canyons are gorgeous. And in that space, um, there are a handful where the 4th century monks decided to go because, A, they could be alone, and Jesus, after all this attention, like King, we heard the story of King, needed space for his own head. We all need space that. Even as we're tired of solitude, we still need it sometimes. He had space to think and to listen and to hear Um, A couple weeks back, I've been started to reread again the Beatitudes. And they're gorgeous poetry. And the sound in that poetry, when you read them in English, is the sound that you would expect would inspire, come from the inspired carpenter. Right? The sound of the saw. Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed those who are persecuted for my name and for my sake. Blessed. And I was like, oh, yeah, I love poetry. Um, I, I Now I can understand where it's, where it's from. One problem, Jim. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And so a couple of weeks ago, I decided, let me find the Beatitudes and let me listen to them in Aramaic. I will not recite what I heard. <laughs> Maybe one day we will sing it, though, because the music that doesn't fit in my mouth right now is the music of the wind of the desert. The desert was a place of inspiration. And so as you move through Lent, be inspired. Seek that Inspiration. He was an acute observer of the natural world. There is no question in the desert you see, and then you see it reflected in his teaching. You see the impact of water, living water, on places that were gray and dusty, and the rain comes down, and the flowers just pop out, even if only for a short while. Or he walked through ravines, which, again, there is water. There is an aquifer that runs through that desert. And it comes, bubbles to the ground. And where it does, there's life. Gorgeous, abundant, full, colorful life. Is it a surprise to you that after leaving that space, the first person to whom he reveals himself is a woman at a well? And he promises to give living water. And finally, he also discerns, discerns his vocation. You know, he went in with knowledge because it was real to him, it revealed to him, revealed to the world at the time of his baptism, his divine kinship. It's one thing to have knowledge. In the desert, he found wisdom, and so this story, this period, as Connor referenced a period of reflection and of restoration, which is the other thing that water does, of inspiration, it ends with temptation. Three questions are asked. I will not put them try to put them precisely, but the first one is. You know, as the scripture said, he was famished. He had been fasting for 40 days. And by the way, even the fasting is preparatory. Because today, science will tell you that when you fast, it actually increases your mental acuity, your cognitive capacity. Makes you sharper. Until it doesn't. But... All of these things had come, and finally, he is tempted, and the first question is, you're hungry. I could turn this to bread. For us, we don't lack for food, but we happen to like stuff, lots of it. And how many of us say, hmm, I just need a little bit more of that and this and the other? And I know no one has ordered on Amazon from the pews here. But it's pretty easy for us to, I think, to acquire and be wrapped away and distracted by stuff. Second question. I want you to go. Come on with me. We'll go to the highest temple and you will leap off. And you'll be protected. Interesting. Remember what Isaiah had to say about meaningless displays of religious behavior. Not interested in that. Not going to jump off a temple just so you can see me call angels to. God's not into parlor tricks. Out there or here. That's not how we make it through then the third thing is probably the most difficult i will give you command of all that you see let's contextualize that um at the time that jesus was in the desert israel had been jerusalem had been conquered had been conquered probably about a century by that stage conquered by the roman empire in about 63 bce um and the Roman legions did not play. They said, if you needed to be taxed, Jesus, remember, Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, has been born in the stable because the empire said, you got to go to Bethlehem to be taxed. You can't do it at your home. So they're dislodged. He saw his people under the boot of or the sandal of the Roman legion, and they did not play. Torture was their stock in, game, in, stock in trade, and they used it to make demonstrations of those who forbade them. When he decided to move, when he decided to preach, when he decided to challenge the existing order, he was coming up against that. And so the choice of, like, hey, I can give you all, including control of this of state power is a hard one. Your family members could be free. Your friends. You could decide how people worship. All of that. Well, of course, nobody else would have any free choice, and you would actually just be substituting your authority for state power, but you'll be all right. You can handle this. Just worship me. And his response, I will serve. I will serve. I will serve the Lord, which is what we're called to do. So, what is the lesson in this wilderness? Well, we know that for Jesus, the wilderness really didn't end. The wilderness happened to be the safest place because the dangerous place was when he went back into society. We know for Martin Luther King that the wilderness didn't end at that kitchen table. And while he was calmed by it, while he had a transcendent religious experience, experience of the divine, he went back to the phone calls the next morning and the demands and everything else. But he was prepared, he had asked for help. He had asked in his exhausted, desert dry body for God's grace. We can ask for that too. In whatever form we want to speak to a higher power. In whatever way we can draw together, we can ask too. That is the promise. And as we ask, we need to ask our own questions of vocation. What is it as we move through this period of transition? We are not the same. We will never be the same as we were February 2020. Never. BC used to be before Christ. Now BC is, that was the first year BC for us before COVID. We're not going to be the same. So what will we be for ourselves? What will we be to each other? Not showy. Not alone. But part of a beloved community. We can create it here. We can make these walls definitely not the limit of sanctuary for people. We can reach people who, because of wheelchairs or other ways, never could come into this church. We now have the tools to do that. But whatever we choose to do, whatever our vocation going forward is, I'd like you to keep two thoughts in mind. There's a thought from Parker Palmer, which is a vocation... Me is the place where your joy meets the world needs. And Howard Thurman takes it deeper than that. He basically says, start with your joy. Don't ask what the world needs, he says. Ask what makes you come alive. Because the world needs people who are alive. Uda read the um, lettuce in the in the opening um, the opening words, and Uda is one of the church's quiet um, but forceful personalities, and may have be the leader of one of the most powerful ministries in this church. Never given a sermon, but if you walk by the peace garden. You saw, uh, see Uta's passion right there. You see where she comes alive and by her coming alive. Every single day, hundreds of people are touched by this church in this place, never crossing those doors. Their experience may be just a moment of peace that they're sitting and listening to the water coming down or the fragrance of the plants and even that garden is shaded by trees more than 100 years old that not a single one of us planted. We worship in a church whose stones and ideas started well before us and we hope to pass on to generations. We take shade under trees that we have never planted. The people before us, whether or not it's king, whether or not it's the founders of the church, they had the spirit and the ethos of cathedral builders. They built things that they knew that they would never sing. King said it. and so, as the recipients of that, the question is, what do we do? How do we use this period to prepare? you know on the on the way here, my um, uh, my wife read to me an article. About um, Jimmy Carter in a speech called the Malay Speech, where he never says Malay. But he talked about, the author talked about, and Nancy read to me as we were driving, what he was after, which is root cause. How we'd lost a sense of community, how we all are seemingly trying to do it by ourselves. We asked for our particular things. We take pride in our particular individual com- com- accomplishments and we don't build community. We don't draw together. We do not see the beauty in each other's faces, hear the wonder in each other's voices, decide that I'm going to actually, I'm just going to till a piece of earth for somebody else. And yet that's what we can do, that's what we do do when we are at our best. But let's be real, we're exhausted part of the reason I think we're exhausted is that our problems are large. There's no question about it. But when Carter was president, the problems were, in many respects, much larger. Thousands had died in the Vietnam War and then lost. When our cities exploded, they were they were. What happened last summer looks like matchsticks compared to what was happening in the 60s and 70s. Not last summer, but in the summers of 2020. When King was killed, more than 130 cities went up in flames. Hundreds died. The only thing perhaps is different is that President, President 45 certainly outdid President Nixon in terms of corrupting the office. But otherwise... Their problems were huge, and the Soviet Union was a massive threat to us. The problem may not be the problems that confront us. It's just that we have made ourselves so much smaller by each of us saying, essentially, we're going to do it on our own. I got mine. I'm good.
0: But we have seen we can do it together. In a moment. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org. And the church Facebook page at facebook.com/slash-first-church-brooklyn, all one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.